fall into heresy is a worse defeat than any the battlefield offers. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Heresy Cast, a Warhammer 40k podcast where we focus on the game, the hobby, the lore, and more. I am your host, Ed, and I've today i am of course it's not tonight we're actually recording this in the daytime because this one's a little late today i am joined of course by the young primark himself gabe gabe how's it going not bad not bad and of course our warhammer 40k greenhorn himself sean sean how's it going my friend good Ed. how you doing i am fantastic because today oh today's gonna be a good one today's gonna be the one one of the ones we're building up to uh it's going to cover for the most part the Horus Heresy. So I am going to give a precursor to this one saying the Horus Heresy lore is deep, extraordinarily deep. There are, I don't know, upwards in the amount of 80 books-ish more <laughs> that cover all of the in-depth lore and fluff of the Horus Heresy. The Siege of Terra itself is an additional series on top of that. So there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to cover all of that in an hour. So if you're looking for specific pieces, we will eventually cover those whenever we cover every individual primarchs and individual legions. But we are going to give a very Cliff Notes version of this. Um, the other thing I'm going to take note real quick, let's do all the social stuff. Um, obviously, if you haven't already and you're not listening to this, we do do this on YouTube as well. So by all means, check out the Dice 8 Productions YouTube channel. Uh, to get the cool graphics that we have for this and occasional of the photos that will pop into there. Uh, join us on Discord if you haven't already in the Dice Hate uh, Discord as well. And there is, of course, the subreddit, the r slash heresy class on the old reddits. Um, one last note on this one. I think this is going to be the last episode we do for a bit on the lore. I feel like the last two episodes, and including this one's basically been story time with Ed for about three hours. And we haven't really touched the game and we haven't really touched the hobby. So starting in next episode, uh, I'm going to give Gabe the reins and allow him to talk about the game itself. And we're going to cover over how to start the game and actually starting coming some of the rules of the game. So those are going to be the next two episodes coming up. All right. All of the preamble out of the way to catch us up where we were last time. Um, the Emperor had completed the Unification Wars and took control completely of Terra. Uh, he did this very specifically with a very specific timing that he chose to do because this was the birth of Slanesh and the clearing of all the warp storms, meaning it was going to be much easier for him to be able to go out and reunite all of these human civilizations across the galaxy that have been separated by these um, by these warp storms. So now that he's got his own house cleaned up and he's got all of his space region legions out, he is missing all of his Primarchs, 20, that's right, 20 Primarchs that were sent out into the, the vastness of the galaxies to all be raised on their own. But he had to clean up his own backyard first. Uh, the very first thing he had to do is he had to go to Mars. And we had mentioned in the past uh, episode that the Mars, Mars is the, the foundry of the Imperium. It is where a lot of things are built. A lot of the technology is built there. And while the Emperor felt that it was entirely plausible for him to take Mars by force, um, the expenditure of resources and the lives lost doing so would have been too great and he would have suffered so much loss that he would not have been able to recoup and continue on the rest of his mission. So in a rare instance with the Imperium and the Emperor, he decided to go down the diplomatic uh, route with the Mechanicum on Mars. You see, we had mentioned, I think, in the first episode, whenever the Necron uh, Catan quote unquote gods had been shattered into a million pieces, one of those pieces ended up on Mars, the, the shard of the, the Void Dragon. And the, the Mechanicum being built up on Mars came to think of this presence that they have no idea what it is as their own personal god, the Omnissiah. So the Emperor, I don't know if he necessarily presented himself as, but the me Mechanicum definitely interpreted him as the Omnissiah. So the, me the Mechanicum were okay following him because they just believed that they were following the Omnissiah. They were following the same person. But to be fair, the two are not one and the same. The Emperor and the Omnissiah are two entirely separate entities. The Mechanicum just simply doesn't know that yet. Um, it's also important to note at this juncture, this is where the treaty comes between um, the Imperium and the Mechanicum. Technically, the Mechanicum is not part of the Imperium. They operate with and in conjunction with and support the Imperium, but they are their own entity. Um, again, 99.9% .9 of the time, they're going to follow Imperial Creed and they're going to do what the Imperium wants. But 
in all true honesty, they are their own functional um, entity inside of the galaxy. They just happen to be extraordinarily aligned with the Imperium. So once he's got Mars under wraps, the very next thing to do is to go out and find all of his lost um, Primars. Now, we will absolutely focus on each of these stories individually, all 18 of the stories that we know. Um, but we're going to give some cliff notes of versions on this one. Uh, the first um, Primark that is discovered by the Emperor is Horus. And it is important to note that the reason this is probably why Horus and the Emperor have as strong of a relationship as they do. Because he was the first. He was the first one to come under Imperial findings. He was the first one to meet the Emperor. He was the first one to get his legion, the then Lunar Wolves, uh, his legion. And he was the first one to go out and spread the Imperial word by himself. Um, and now we're just going to slide into my second page of full notes on the Horus Heresy. Over time, the rest of the Primarchs are found over the course of M31. Now's probably a good time to bring up the, the two quote-unquote lost legions. Uh, as I've, I keep intimating to this over the last couple of episodes, but we'll kind of dive into this. Originally, there were 20 Primarchs found. There are only 18 known on Imperial record right now, which means that there are two missing. Now, in the real world, outside of the Warhammer 40k world, uh, there's a couple of theories as to how this happened. I think uh, originally, whenever the first edition of 40K came out, they had mentioned 20 Primarchs. And the the fluff hadn't been solidified quite just yet. Uh, Games Workshop is known for retconning their own truth and blaming the unreliable narrator on who did what. Uh, there's a lot of theories as to whether or not it was genuinely a misprint. That whenever it went out into the first books, that there were 20 that they always meant to have 18. But once 20 went out there, it was kind of out there. Um, I'm not a fan of that theory. The theory that I am a personal fan of is Games Workshop has always encouraged players to do their own Space Marine chapters. And I think they intentionally left those two slots open with the idea of, oh, well, if you have your own Space Marine chapter, it was founded by one of these two Primarchs. And I think as they began to expand the fluff, as they began to get deeper into the lore, they discovered how problematic that was going to be for canon lore to have these two other Primarchs just floating around during the Horus Heresy that no one knows what they were doing. Were they traitor? Were they loyalists? We don't know. So ultimately, end, they eliminated them from, from the game and the lore. They have intimated in certain books where they talked about like the rooms in the Imperial Palace, how they have the, the Legion numbers on the doors. It's kind of like, I don't know. The easiest way to think is like, imagine like a big dorm room where every Primarch had their own room. And those two doors do exist in the Imperial Palace, but no one's allowed to go into them. So no one really knows, like, are they dead? Are they gone? Um, no one really knows for sure. It's It's been said, again, in the real world, that inside the hallowed halls of the Black Library, uh, the Games Workshop authors do 100% know what happened to the two lost Primarchs and knows what their stories are, but those stories are not being released. I don't know if they ever will be, to be honest with you. So that covers the two, I guess, so long story short, make sure I remind that during the course of this time, whatever these two Primarchs did, they're gone. Whether they're dead or alive, we don't know. What we do know is that their legions no longer exist. Now, oddly enough, in and around that same time, the Ultramarine uh, Legion seems to swell in numbers significantly. Um, it's important to note, though, there's a lot, there could be a lot of reasons for that, because while most of the Primarchs eventually took over the worlds that they landed on whenever they were scattered. They completely took control over their own worlds. Reboot Gilliman from the Ultramarines didn't do just that. He took over an entire sector of the galaxy. Like, there's a lot of worlds that fall under the Ultramar um, system that is still in existence today. So there's, you could say that the numbers swelled because they just had a larger pool to pull from as far as who were going to be Adeptus Astartes, or... Maybe they got some cast-offs from the Legion that disappeared. Who knows? All right. So the campaign's going well. The Imperium is either doing the diplomatic route of saying, hey, we're the Imperium. Welcome back to the family. And everyone's like, yay, the Imperium's back. Yay. And, and everyone's happy about that. Or some of these worlds have been on their own for millennia. Um, we're not too fond of the idea of rejoining up with the old Imperium, and they were brought into compliance by force, if necessary. Um, 
One of the things that we do want to take note of is in and around the same time is around the time that Lorgar, um, the world, the Primarch of the World Bearers, um, his interpretation of the Emperor in the Imperial Creed was a little bit different than his brothers. He saw the Emperor as a living God, and the worlds that he would bring into compliance, that is what he would tell them. He would tell them that the Emperor is a living God, he should be worshipped as a God, and his march across the galaxy, the, the assignments that he had been given, the worlds he was assigned to cover, were taking much, much longer than the rest of his brothers, simply because it took a long time to establish religion on planets that up until this point either had their own that needed to be wiped out or had none, because that's what the emperor said, no religion, and in establishing that. As things are going well, um, the emperor hasn't had really a lot of pushback on where things are going. He's reached the point now where he's ready to move on to his next project, um, the Golden Throne project. Now, originally what the Golden Throne was supposed to do, we had talked about in the previous, uh, I think probably the first episode, about the webway, the the interconnection of subdimensional gates that circumvent the warp for travel. It's the way that the old ones traveled. It's the way that the Eldar currently travel. Uh, they don't use warp travel. They just subvert it by going through these subdimensions because of the dangers that a lot that were in the warp. The Emperor was fully well aware of and may have been in league with <laughs> with a little bit. Of help trying to get the the Primark project completed, um, he wanted to find a way to completely eliminate the warp from humanity's influence. Trying to eliminate, um, he was a strong atheist, uh, completely secular, completely science based. Did not want to have humans worshiping gods to weaken the the gods of chaos. And then he wanted to even further weaken them by eliminating humans even traveling through the warp by giving them a different means of travel. So at the very very beginnings of the what would eventually be known as the Horus Heresy, the first thing that the Emperor does is put Horus in command of the campaign. Um, there were pl other Primarchs he could have picked to do so, but it's important to note at this point, Horus, of all the Primarchs, was the one that was the most liked. He was the one that was most like the Emperor. He was the one that was the most friendly, easy to reach, easy, but tactical, strong, intelligent. Like he was in a logical choice. So even those other Primarchs that would have felt like, hey, I kind of got passed by for that. I should have been the War Master. Kind of stepped back and were like, yeah, yeah, Forrest makes sense to do this. The other thing that the Emperor does in and around this time that the Space Marines didn't particularly care for was when the Emperor gets back to Terra, he creates the Council of, T of Terra. It is the High Lords of Terra, and they're the ones that are going to be running what eventually become the Administratum. Um, they're the ones that are going to be in charge of running the day-to-day -day operations of the Imperium. And the Astartes, some of the Space Marine chapters, uh, Legion Astartes, Lorgar is kind of doing his Lorgar thing and bearing the word of the Emperor in a method that necessarily doesn't um, fit with where they were, what they wanted to do. The Emperor had to correct Lorgar in probably the most humiliating way possible. Basically, the Emperor had gotten word of what... They started looking into what Lorgar was doing and why it was taking him so long to bring worlds into compliance. And when they found out what he was doing, establishing the Emperor as a religion, and the Emperor... This is strictly against what the Emperor wanted to do. The Emperor decided that he was going to correct not only Lorgar, but the entire Wordbearer's Legion publicly... And in humiliating fashion, in the fact that all of the churches that they had erected on their worlds, on this particular world, they had raised to the ground. And basically, the emperor chastised Lorgar and the warbearers for what they were doing. This led Lorgar to believe that perhaps the emperor didn't know everything that he said he did. Because Lorgar, from his perspective, believed that worshiping of the gods was needed and he needed to find something worthy of his worship. And it was clearly not the emperor. And we'll put a pin in that for a moment. Um, a lot of the world bearers began to feel this way. Not all of them, but a lot of them did, including uh, Lorgar's first lieutenant, Erebus. Erebus's name is going to come up a lot in the lore of 40k. And anytime anything bad happens, when it comes to the gods of chaos and its interactions with the Imperium, 
I feel that somehow, someway, Erebus is always involved in that, including the next incident that we're going to talk about. On one particular world and a particular planet that they were trying to bring into compliance, Horus ends up getting wounded in a battle. He is wounded by a poisoned blade that Erebus may or may not have given to those combatants to do this with, as in he intentionally put Horus into a position where he was not only A, going to be wounded, but B, have to be be poisoned. He was in a very terrible state, to the point that the Imperium doctors didn't feel that they could correct him. So Erebus was like, the people here know this sword, they know the poison, they know what it can do, allow us to have these people hear Hor- heal Horus. So against their better judgment, against what they really should have done in a hope to try to save Horus's life, they allowed the inhabitants of this world to heal him. Now, this is all part of the plan by Erebus, as Erebus helps in the healing, but Horus is also, during the course of this healing, given a vision of the future. And the vision of the future that Erebus gives to Horus is what the Imperium is going to be in the future. Very religious-based, very staunch, very um, an Imperium in decay. And having seen the real future of what was going to be the Imperium, they kind of left out the detail that he caused this. Um, But having seen what the future of what the Imperium was going to become, Horus then made the decision at that moment Oh, it was also in this vision, I should take note, that in this vision, Horus, it's also revealed to Horus that the Chaos Gods are real and that the Emperor may or may not have had some dealings with them in order to create the Primarch project that he may have reneged on those deals. So all of this is revealed to to Horus to the point where he now recognizes that his father, the Emperor of Mankind, is in the wrong and has to be stopped. So from a certain point of view, if you tilt your head and squint your eyes a little, you can almost understand Horace's reasons for wanting reasons for wanting what he doing what he did, which was we need to stop the emperor from causing this to happen. In his mind, that's what he was trying to do, at least in the beginning. So Horace inevitably falls to chaos. He's the he's the second domino to fall, uh, Lorgar being the first. Horus being arguably the most important domino to fall in that. Now, one of his other brothers becomes fairly aware of this fairly quickly. Uh, that is Magnus the Red of the Thousand Sons becomes aware of Horus's uh, fall to fall to chaos and decides, I need to go back to dad. I'm telling on you. And he's going to go and tattle on his brother Horus about what had happened. So Magnus, even though he had been told not necessarily to use the psychic powers that he has, decides it's the only way that he can get to the Emperor quickly is to fast travel himself from where he is directly into the Imperial throne room where he knows the Emperor is going to be. This inadvertently caused problems because what Magnus the Red was trying to do, in my mind, was a good thing. He was trying to warn the Emperor about what was happening. What it did, though, is that in order for Magnus to get to the throne room, he had to break down all of these psychic barriers that the Emperor had built up specifically to keep Terra from being invaded by demons and so that he could work on the Golden Throne project and focus on that. So when Magnus gets there and goes to tell his father about what had happened, he inadvertently broke some shit on the way in. And the Emperor was furious to the point now that it absolutely destroyed all the work the Emperor had put into the Webway project. And then the Golden Throne then had to be used not for the Webray project, that was a lost cause at this point, but to then hold these gates closed to prevent terror from being invaded by demons. So it sidelined the Emperor from being able to do anything. The only thing he could do was to be able to sit on that throne and hold those gates closed so that terror did not get invaded. <sighs> so, because Magnus was a bad boy, the Emperor decides... He needs to be brought in for questioning and probably punitive punishment. He decides to send one of his one of his um, primarchs, Lehman Russ of the Space Wolves, to go and capture him and bring him back to Terra for questioning. Those messages may have been reworded. What's the easy way to say this one? 
may have been manipulated. Manipulated. That's a good word. Those orders may have been manipulated by by Horus when he's relaying them to Russ. Instead, sending Magnus to go and kill, or sending um, Russ to go and kill Magnus and all of the Thousand Sons. So, on the Thousand Sons' homeworld, off Prospero, you have a battle between the Thousand Sons and the Space Wolves, and the two of them basically fight each other out to almost near extinction. Uh, it was a bloody, horrible battle, but it is affectionately known as Prospero Burning. That is the world that was done, and. During the course of this, seeing what the Emperor's response was to one of his sons, simply trying to warn him of something, uh, Horus was able to use this um, assault on Prospero to help sway some of his other brothers to join him in his rebellion. And we'll get to which ones here in a moment. So now Horus has got a few legions on his side. But he recognizes that simply because I have the head of these legions on their side and maybe some of their top upper echelon um, leadership on their side, I don't have every single Astartes from every single legion on my side. So the first thing I need to do is I need to cleanse these legions of loyalist space marines. Because just because I'm with the world eaters does not mean that I'm immediately a traitor because... um, why am I drawing a blank on the world eaters? Angron. Angron, thank you. Just because Angron shifted and Korn and Karn shifted and fell to chaos doesn't mean Joshmo uh, Astartes for the world eaters also fell to the fell to the ruinous powers of chaos. So in order to weed themselves out of having these loyalist members within their legions, Horus came up with a dastardly plan of how to get rid of them. He was going to launch an assault on a planet called Istvan 3, a world they were trying to bring into compliance. It's not just a random, hey, just go attack this world. They were trying to bring this world in compliance. And all of his brothers who had joined him specifically weeded out all the ones that they felt were loyal and sent them down to the planet to invade and bring Istvan 3 into compliance. And once all of the loyalist members of their own legions were on this world, they virus bombed it from space and killed almost all of them. And I kind of want to like, I, I don't, virus bomb is not, hey, boom, everyone gets sick. <laughs> I don't feel bad. And they all kill over. Like it is this it fast spreading airborne contagion that is flesh eating, flesh tearing virus that kills you within minutes of, of contracting it. It is an awful way to die. And that is what they did to the loyalist members of their own legions. These are people that had sworn allegiance to their own Primarch. That is how they treated them to get them out of the way. So not everyone dies on Istvan 3. There is a a freighter by the name of the Eisenstein. They decide they need to warn everybody what is happening. It is clear now that there are members of these Space Marine legions and their Primarchs that have gone rogue, they are rebelling against the Emperor, and we need to warn everybody. There's a fantastic book, which we'll hopefully we'll read at some point in time in story time, um, of the Flight of the Eisenstein, where they are going off to warn the Imperium of what is happening. So, in order to put down this rebellion, the, the, the details of the rebellion isn't 100% known. It is known that some legions have fallen to chaos and have, or have rebelled, they don't even know the fall into chaos part, have rebelled against the emperor, but they're not entirely certain which ones, how many, and how strong this rebellion is. So in an, the hope, of course, was that they were just going to put this rebellion down in one fell swoop. And of course, Horus is still technically the war master, and no one really realizes that he's the one kind of pulling the strings behind the, the, the scenes. So the Loyalist Legions are going to meet with the rebels on the same system in Istvan, on Istvan 5, and they're going to put down this rebellion for good. So he sends the Raven Guard, the Iron Hands, and the Salamander's Legions down to the planet to put down this rebellion. With backups from their good, good buddies, the Alpha Legion, the Iron Warriors, the Night Lords, and the Word Bearers, who, if you know much about 40k lore, for those who don't, those are all traitor legions. So what the Raven Guard, Iron Hands, and Salamanders are walking into is a trap, and they don't know that. So they get to the planet, they're putting down the rebellion, and then as everyone's dropping down, their buddies are dropping in behind them, the Alpha Legion, the Iron Warriors, the Night Lords, they're all, we've got your back, brother, we're right here, 
And they quite literally, their brother-on-brother civil war starts flat out right here as these four legions, it's a four-on-three, and these three legions, the Raven Guard, the Iron Hands, and the Salamanders, are beaten so poorly that they are not much of a contributing factor for the rest of the Horus Heresy. The rest of the Traitor Legions did take losses, but because they had a four-on-one advantage, they clearly had the assault. They, they had the element of surprise. It was quite literally an attack from the back. Um, they didn't suffer nearly as many losses. But though it's important to note how Horus was able to get to Terra, it involved a lot of trickery, a lot of deception, a lot of manipulation to be quite literally be able to wipe out three Loyalist legions almost at the onset of the beginning of the Horus Heresy. So, where uh, this is also, yeah, this is probably where the this is where we get our first death of a Primarch during the Dropsite Massacre. Uh, Ferris Manus of the Iron Hands is decapitated by Fulgrim of the Emperor's Children. Um, so that is the first death of a Primarch that we can confirm. Uh, he died during the course of that battle. So now we're in flat out open civil war, and there is a gigantic rush for Terra. Now, Horus, being the tactical genius that he is, also did something else to assist himself on this in trying to be able to make his way to, to Terra much easier to get to. He had sent out the bulk of the Ultramarines and the bulk of the Space Wolves on way off systems, way out there, so that by the time word got to them, about what he was doing in his his attempt to assault on Terra, it would take them too long to get back to be able to stop him. At least that was the plan. So this caused, at this juncture in the war, basically a six-on-three advantage um, traders on the rush for the Terran system. The Emperor couldn't help. He couldn't get involved personally in these events because he had to stay on the golden throne if he'd have left the throne the demons would have poured into the gold the poured into earth and it would have been just a gigantic mess so he had to stay where he was so the, i mean i literally just tried to condense 10 years worth of history in about a few sentences so i know that there's a lot more that goes in there Horus gets to Earth, begins orbital bombardments, begins dropping troops on the, and the whole point behind what they're trying to do, they are trying to take over the Imperial Palace. And luckily for the, the, the Loyalist Marines, you've got Rogaldorn and the Imperial Fists, and they love building walls. Lots and lots of walls, lots and lots of army. And it became a very difficult battle for them to even attempt to puncture the Imperial Palace walls to be able to even get to the Emperor. 55 days. Uh, for 55 days, there was constant fighting on the front lines of all of the traitor legions trying to get to the Emperor and the, and the Imperial Fist behind their massive walls, preventing them from doing so. On day 55 of this conflict, Horus receives word that the Space Wolves and the Ultramarines are inbound. This took much, much longer. This took two months. He thought he was going to have this done in a few hours. He was wrong. It has now taken him two months to try to take the Imperial Palace, and he's been unsuccessful to do so. In a few hours, the Ultramarines are going to be there, the Space Wolves are going to be there, and he's going to be facing an assault in the front and in the rear, and he cannot win that fight, and he knows it. So in a bold move, Horus lowers the shields in the Vengeful Spirit and quite literally, come at me, bros, the Emperor. You want me? Come and get me. And the Emperor accepts this challenge. He takes his good friend, Malkador the Sigilite, and puts him on the Golden Throne. And is basically, hold my beer, hold these doors closed, I'll be back. It's important to note, that's how important Malkador is to this. I really feel like I'm not giving him nearly enough credit. Malkador's just a guy. He's, he's just a guy who's got, he is very psychically attuned, but he's just a guy. He's not an Astartes. He's not the emperor. He's not. He's just a guy. But he's also the emperor's oldest and closest friend, and he trusts him with putting him on the throne while he decides to go and take take this on. So the emperor takes, aside from a few attaches of Astartes and, and guardsmen, he also takes uh, Rogel Dorn with him, and he takes Sanguinius of the Blood Angels with him to go and face Horus on the Vengeful Spirit again. Horus, not being a fool, 
when they teleport onto the vengeful spirit, their teleport transmissions are scrambled and they do not arrive together all in the same place on the vengeful spirit. They're scattered throughout the ship, which became a fierce firefight all over the ship, trying to reach the bridge and trying to reach Horus. Sanguinius is the first to get there. He and his brother fight. There is an epic battle between Sanguinius and Horus, but ultimately in the end, Horus was a better fighter than Sanguinius, and Sanguinius falls in this battle. So Sanguinius is dead at this juncture. Just as Sanguinius dies, the emperor enters, enters, the, enters the discord, and he is now in the room, and he and Horus fight. Now, the entire time, keeping in mind that Horus was his most beloved son. He was the one that he felt closest to. So the emperor is not going full force. He's He's got the pads on. He's like, okay, I'm going to hold you off here. You don't really want to do this. And there's a lot of him trying to talk his son down. So the emperor is not giving back, giving him his all, trying to destroy him. Horus, on the other hand, did not pull any punches. And he ended up putting the emperor's eye out and he ended up giving him a, a, a what turned out to be a mortal wound. And as the emperor is lying, bleeding on the floor, he's lost an eye. There is this story, and it has yet to be confirmed, and eventually it will be confirmed, I hope, um, by the Black Library books on the Siege of Terror. There are stories that someone inter tried to intervene in the fight, and Horus kills that someone. And whoever that someone won was enough to prove to the emperor that his son was unredeemable. The story that I like the most is it was a lone guardsman. And I love that story more because none, he walked into a room with a last gun. There's one dead Primarch over there, the guy, the freaky guy with wings. The emperor is down on the floor with a mortal wound and his eyeball ripped out. And this guardsman, like, nah, bro, I got this. And goes in there to fight. Horus and Horus basically completely obliterates the guy. There's nothing that this guy can do. The moral of the story is that this action, having physically witnessed Horus show no level of mercy, no level of care, proved to the emperor beyond a shadow of a doubt that his son was irredeemable. He had to die. And as the emperor is blasting him with as much psychic energy as he can to kill him, there is a brief moment in that exchange where the dark forces of the Chaos Gods abandon Horus, recognizing that he's going to die, and Horus is himself again. And in that moment, there's that debate in the Emperor's head. Well, if I kill him, if I don't kill him, he's going to come back. The powers of Chaos are just going to re-inhabit him. So in order to do Horus a favor so that he never has to deal with that either on the material plane or when he gets to the warp, the emperor completely annihilates every fragment of him. So much so that there isn't anything left of his spirit to go to the warp. So Horus is utterly destroyed. And then Dorn shows up, um, having seen like Horus is dead. Sanguinius is dead. The lone guardsman is dead. Um, the moment that it begins apparent that Horus is done and the rebellion has is over. Um, people start pulling out. If I'm not mistaken, Perturabo had pulled out a few hours before because he saw the uselessness of it. Um, Mortarian and the Death Guard, they pulled out. Um, but you have this broken husk of what is the Emperor, and Rogogorn picks him up and takes him back down to, to Terra to the to the throne. They replace the 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 husk of what used to be Malkador the Sigilate, um, who did his damnedest to keep those gates closed as long as he could, and replace the Emperor on the Golden Throne. So moving forward for the next 12,000 years, the Golden Throne, for all intents and purposes, is a gigantic life support device. Oh, I should note, Malkador the Sigilite, in his very dying moments before he dies, passes on what's left of his own living life force to the Emperor to kind of keep him just like, like, you're not 100% dead, you're only 99% dead. There's still something left in there. And that figment of an imagination of what used to be the Emperor is what currently sits on the Golden Throne. The Golden Throne being used specifically for life support to keep 
him alive so that he can keep the demons off of Terra. It also helps that that gigantic use of psychic energy is a gigantic beacon in the warp that it may or may not be used as a lighthouse to help guide travel through the warp moving forward, but that is what ends up happening. Traitor forces are again fleeing uh, Terra. Most of the traitor forces uh, flee to the Eye of Terror because it is a point of safety since they've already fallen to chaos. Not all of them. I don't think Perturabo went there, and I'm I, I I'm pretty sure Mortarian went to the Eye of Terror yeah. because he's got his own world. I know that's where Angron went. I know that's where Fulgrim from the Emperor's Children went. Um, most of them go. Not all. I think uh, Alpha. Afarius and Omegon, the twin, quote-unquote twin, um, Primarchs, did not go to the Eye of Terror, no, but most no. of them went. And that is the short, short version of the Horus Heresy. Do you have any questions or comments, Sean? Because I do have one other thing that happens. There's only a few other things that happen in M31 we probably should cover. Because, um, again, the Horus Heresy only takes place over the course of about 10 or 13 years, grand total. So that was, a, but it's a gigantic, it is arguably the single most important event in Imperial history. Nope, I'm actually following pretty well with that. Good. good. Um, I've had a little bit of time to study that portion of it. And once again, I don't know enough about it, but, you know, well, no, learning is good. It's understandable. Again, it's it is clearly the one that is the most I hate saying romanticized, but it is genuinely true. That was the Imperium at its best that it would ever be followed directly by the worst that it was ever going to be as you had legions of space marines turning on the emperor and fighting against. Um, one other little important event of note that happens in M31 towards the middle parts of it, um, the Ferris Beacon. Um, it was a beacon that had been found on a planet, and they were basically trying to turn it off, and they decided the best way to do it was to overload it. Um, the overloading of this Ferris Beacon sent out this gigantic psychic shockwave that extended out beyond our own galaxy and is more than likely responsible for getting the Tyranids attention and saying, Hey, it's like, it's like the, uh, the drive through open 24 hours, seven that's flashing on the highway. That's pretty much what this did was draw the attention of the Tyranids. Now they may have already been in our general direction anyway, but this definitely focused them in towards us. So we're sitting here at the 40 minute mark. I can probably get to something that I I'm going to have to choke down as canon in the 40k universe. So, with the Emperor dead, half the brothers are gone traitor. We've got dead Primarchs here, dead Primarchs there. Um, the reins of the Imperium fall to the next person, quote-unquote, in line for succession. And that was almost universally decided to be Reboot Gilliman of the Ultramarine. And his Reboot Gilliman is standing in the ruins of what used to be the Imperial Palace, looking around at all of the dead Astartes around the, around him going, wow, this, this really sucked. I mean, this was really dangerous. This really got out of hand. We, we, we need to make sure that this never happens again. I want to put ourselves in a position that no Space Marine Legion could ever raise arms against the Imperium again and hope to be successful. So he begins writing the Codex Astartes. And basically, it is the rule book that is used for a Space Marine chapter. But in it, what it did, instead of having these legions of unknown hundreds of thousands of Adeptus Astartes, the Codex Astartes, among the other things that it did, basically laid out rules saying that no Space Marine chapter can consist of any more than 1,000 um, Astartes. The idea behind that being is should that chapter of Space Marine fall to chaos, a thousand Astartes, I mean, they're an ample force. They genuinely are, but they're not enough to cause enough damage to be able to destroy the Imperium. More than likely, a couple of Loyalist chapters will go in and they'll fight it out, but they're not going to be in the sizes required to cause that much damage. Now, Russ and the 
Space Wolves Factor basically told Gilliman to go pound salt, that they weren't going to be abiding by it. I mean, they kind of loosely abided by it because they broke themselves up into companies. So maybe that'll kind of appease Reboot, like let him think he's running things. But most of the other Loyalist chapters did absolutely do this, including Gilliman himself, which is why most of the... And this is this is called the, the first founding. This is the first founding of these Space Marine chapters, which is why most of the first founding um, Space Marine chapters are indeed former Ultramarines that were broken up in this in this time frame. And one of the first things that they decided to do, hey, you remember those guys that were killing us a couple of weeks back? Let's go get them. And this is called the Great Scouring, as the Loyalist Space Marine chapters are sent out to the galaxy to do their best to bring down, hunt down, and wipe out the rest of the traitor legions and get them out of uh, out of Imperial space. It's also important to note that after Gilliman did this, after he's standing in the ruins of the Imperial Palace looking around saying, hey, nobody should ever have this much power, let's break all them up, he completely contradicts himself and says, hey, he's met by this adept from the Adeptus Mechanicus, some guy he'd never heard of before called Belisarius Cole, and Kroll is, uh, comes to him and says, hey, hey, you guys are great. Like, these, these are starties you got, but I bet, I bet I can do better. I bet you I can make those Astartes bigger, stronger, and faster. Why don't we do that? That sounds, that sounds like a good idea. And Gilliman, well, I don't know. I, I think Gilliman may have actually charged him. I'm only doing this in jest because I legitimately cannot stand this story. I'm feeling it's completely breaking of the lore. In the end, Belisarius Cole was assigned the task of creating super space marines, otherwise known as the Primaris Marines. It started right here at the end of the Horus Heresy, where Reboot Gilliman gave him his instructions and sent him out into the galaxy to go and make bigger, better space marines to improve not only on the Emperor's design for what an Astartes should be, but to also somehow magically equip them with armor, bullets, guns, tanks, and do all of it in secret, and no one's ever going to notice that. And the only person in the entire Imperium that can, and they're, they're not going to be activated, the, the, the Primaris, they will go in stasis and they'll just sit there and wait only when Bobby G says that we can go, we will go, and we will get all those Primaris Marines out there. Whatever happens if Bobby G, Bobby G suffers a wound that has to be put into stasis, oh well, I guess I'm just going to keep making Primaris Marines until Bobby G tells me to stop. Which is exactly what happens with the Primaris, is basically Belisarius Cole goes completely, very enthusiastically into this task and creates hundreds of thousands of Primaris Marines that all subsequently are technically under the command of Reboot Gilliman because he's the only one that can go to call and say, yeah, those things we made, turn them on, let's go. He's the only one that can do that. So we're going to put a pin in the Primaris Marines for a bit and all of the horrible things that are going to happen that the Primaris Marines would have been really, really nice to have around for, but, eh, you know, Bobby G didn't say that we could use them, so they're just going to sit there quietly in, in, in the background. Um, in and around this time, so I'm getting off my, I'm going to get off my soapbox on the primary marine lore and why I feel it's feel stupid. I think giving all the things that we just said, I think that kind of covers is where this gap in the lore comes in. Like, wow, that sounds really bizarre. Why would Gilliman go to all these legions, his brothers who he just won a war with and say, Hey, you guys are too strong. You should break up. Hey, over here. I need you to make a bigger army than they have. I mean, just in case, just in case, in case we might need it. Like it's just anyway. All right, I'm done. I'm done. The Grey Knights are also founded during this time frame. Uh, during the course of the war, it had been determined that there are quite a few space marines that had extraordinarily strong psychic powers. And with the Emperor not around to tell them not to do it, they decided that they needed to be able to keep these kinds of things in control and in check. We needed someone specifically to fight demons. So they took all of these space marines, Astartes, who are super psychic and put them into their own, it's not even a chapter, because they're not that big, but their own faction of the Imperium, known as the Grey Knights. And where are we at for timelines? All right, so I got 12 minutes. 12 minutes, I can finish up M31. Yay! So, um, over time, uh, Loyalist Primarchs start to disappear. Some of them, um, out of strict depression, 
um, over what had happened, trying to come to grips with what had happened over the course of the Horus Heresy. Some of them simply walked away. Some of them were killed in battle. Some of them, like, for example, as I was kind of illumin- uh, intimating to earlier, right after Gilliman gives his um, orders to Belisarius Call to make these Primaris Marines, he's mortally wounded. And the only way to keep him alive is a method similar to what they did with the Emperor, which was to put him in a stasis field and not allow him to die. So they took his body back to Ultramar and on McCrag and left him there in this field, preventing him from dying. But he's also not awake and not an active member of what's going on with the, the Ultramarines at that time. Chaos Legions. Okay, so once the Chaos Legions get back to the Eye of Terra and they start like licking their wounds and looking around what's going on, this is where, in my opinion, the downside of the Ruinous Powers of Chaos come in because you have factions like Mortarian and the Death Guard who worship Nurgle, and you have those like Thousand Sons who worship Zinch. It is very well known that Zinch and Nurgle do not get along. And Korn's not a fan of Zinch either, so the World Eaters aren't going to be very happy with the Thousand Sons either. So ultimately, in the end, what happens is all of these Chaos Marine um, factions start infighting for control of the very limited amount of resources that they have, to, and it's they become a broken group. Um, none so more broken than what used to be Horus's chapter, and I think I can probably end on this one. They started off as the the Lunar Wolves. Whenever Horus was named the the War Master, they changed their names to the Sons of Horus. Well, with Horus dead and Ezekiel Abaddon taking over the reins, his first lieutenant taking over the leans, uh, reins of the Legion, they were renamed once again to the Black Legion. Now, if you've picked up a Chaos Space Marine Codex or seen any of them, those are the most common form of Chaos Space Marines you are probably going to see. They're, the, they're very, you'll find as we talk about the stories of the Legions and the Primarchs themselves, there's like a good and a bad mirror on either side, the Loyalists and the Traitor Marines. Um, the Ultramarines are considered the generic blues. Like a lot of people aren't particular fans of the Ultramarines. I don't see why. I think they have a cool story. And I think, especially Reboot Gilliman coming back, which we'll get to later, um, has kind of added to it. But they're like the the generic, uh, what's the jack of all trades, master of none kind of um, space marine chapter. Uh, the the Black Legion is the exact same way, jack of all trades, masters of none. Like they don't do any one particular thing particularly well. They just don't do anything particularly bad either. Um, they're also the ones that suffered the most heavy losses after the after the Horus Heresy. So. They are, Abaddon being the head of that legion at this juncture is doing his best to just recruit anybody, anybody he can, um, to strengthen his forces. So we'll get into that because Abaddon has this fun hobby he likes to do every couple hundred years where he, let's go and do a, a Black Crusade and let's go take this artifact off this planet and let's go kill these people. And it takes him quite literally hundreds, if not thousands of years to get all of the space read chapters to stop fighting each other for a few years to focus in on one specific task of take that planet, take that artifact. It literally takes him that long. And he's trying his best to keep keep it, keep it everything under control and hold the reins, and it doesn't always work out the way that he wants to. All right. Did I miss anything? Did I do... Because I actually thought this one was going to run longer, but I think I probably ran through fast forward on the Horus Heresy, so I do apologize for that one. Again, there's so much story, there's so much lore, there's so many things in the Horus Heresy that I wanted to cover. I wanted to hit all the high points of the main story um, that covers what happened, and it also covers why the Imperium is in the state that it is in quote-unquote modern times of 40k. And the Loyalists are broken up into individual chapters, and those that are still first founding so to speak the the actual legions themselves are broken up even further into sub companies so that they cannot be too big and they cannot even if they were to follow chaos they wouldn't be able to do enough damage it kind of explains what happens to where all this chaos space marine chapters are most of them went time spent time in the work so why is it whenever i see a chaos space marine today on the tabletop he's got a weird tentacle and this bone sticking out of his head well they spent ten thousand years in the warp um that kind of happens after a while. So it's genuinely important to take note that the Marines, the 
that you see on the tabletop and you hear in the stories are still the same ones for the most part that were around during the Horus Heresy 10,000 years ago. They, keeping in mind they're in the warp that kind of bends time, space, matter. So it may not seem as long to them, but these are still the same Marines. Like there aren't many characters outside of Primarchs who were around during the Horus Heresy that are still around in current existing lore. The only one that jumps out to me right al- right away is the the dreadnought from the Space Marines. Um, Bjorn. Bjorn! Bjorn the Fell-Handed. He was there during the Siege of Terra. He was there during the Horus Heresy. He's still technically around, even though he's in a sarcophagus that just only gets brought out to go out and kill things from time to time. But there aren't that many um, of the Loyalists that were around during that time frame that are still around in modern times. So it's kind of important to note that the delineation between the two. I love, would love, 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 start on to M32. Abaddon has gone through and launched a couple of Black Crusades. I'll pick out the important ones. I mean, they're all technically important, the 13th one being probably one of the biggest ones. Um, but every couple, like I said, every couple of hundred years, Abaddon's able to get all these folks together. By the time we hit M32, we're into the third Black Crusade. And because forces, because of the toll that the Horus Heresy took on the Imperial forces and their ability to fight, orc forces have now begun to push more into human worlds. Like before they were able to keep them at bay because everyone was just doing their job guarding things. But when you have to go off and fight, you kind of let the back door open. And then the orcs are beginning to press into uh, Imperial space. Um, The Ecclesiarchy. Okay, so I can probably go over into the Ecclesiarchy just a bit. I'll, I'll talk about what the Ecclesiarchy is. And then we'll get into deeper whenever we get into the next episode of the lore. The Ecclesiarchy is basically the religious arm of the Imperium. Now, that should sound like a contradiction in terms, because it is. The the Emperor specifically stated secular government, science-based, no superstitions. He wanted no religion. And a few hundred years after the emperor was put onto the throne, there were those that began to worship him as a god. So much so that it was in the same time frame of people who actually had met the emperor, who had actually seen him and knew that he was just a man. Probably the most powerful of any of us, definitely the most psychically strong, definitely the smartest, definitely the most powerful, but he was still human not a god but as the ecclesiarchy the those that began to worship him began to gain popularity only a couple hundred years of separation between him getting put on the throne to where it was this whole concept of an official religion of the imperium started catching on so much so that after some infighting between all of these no we're the right right religion for the emperor no you're the right religion for the emperor um after all of that infighting kind of goes in and the Imperial Creed becomes uh, codified, I guess is the best word for it, um, they made a petition to join the High Lords of Terra. They wanted representation, official representation in Imperial government, and they gave one seat to the highest religious figure in the Imperium, and he is known as the Ecclesium. And that is where I'm going to stop that story. Um, because the second we start getting into the Ecclesiarch and the Ecclesiarchy, I have to go into the Age of Apostasy, which is an M36, which I really, really looking forward to. It's the second thing I'm looking forward to talking about the most. <sighs> All right. So story time with Ed is over, at least for the next couple episodes. Like I said, I'm going to be turning the reins over to uh, Gabe over here. I am putting him in charge. I'm going to let him come up with his own show notes in a week or so to on what he wants to cover in the order in which he wants to cover it. I don't know, Gabe. Oh, no. I don't know if you want to start like we had talked. It's not like we haven't had these conversations in person before. We've talked about, well, let's talk about, hey, I want to get into this hobby. Where do I start? What right. stuff do I need to buy? That kind of thing. And then I see a second episode coming, spinning off of that. Let's cover the rules of the game. We do have Sean on the other end who's he's rolled some dice. He and his son have gotten some stuff on the table. But like, I think it would be helpful to kind of explain the rules. Now, I will take note. I don't like dating the show necessarily. 40k lore is eternal as far as I'm concerned, but 40k rules are very, very different than that. Uh, we are in what is probably the waning year or so of ninth edition in 40k. While it was not announced this past weekend, I do have a strong suspicion that this campaign books that are coming out in summer 
That's how Games Workshop ends in addition. They go through, they put a brand new codex for every army in the in the in the game. Do it, they double up on the Space Marine Codex for some reason. And then they end the edition with a campaign book right before they kick off for the new edition. I personally am in the camp that I don't feel another edition is necessarily needed, uh, especially with the way that they release rules, especially with the uh, balanced data sheets that they put out every six months. I don't like the basic day to day rules that are just in those books. I don't feel needs fixing. There are a couple of things if they were going to do major changes with how stratagems work. But since we haven't covered any of that for those who have been listening, we're not quite there yet. But my point, Gabe, is I think uh, how to begin 40K, like a buying guide, would probably be a good episode for the next one. And then following that, we'll go over basic rules, where to get them, how to find them, that kind of stuff. Right, right. Okay. Which means it's going to be a lot less of Ed talking during that and hopefully much more of Gabe talking during the Christmas. (laughs) That's what I... And I'll have have a million questions, too, because... It's it's an interesting so the game is so large, right? And you're looking at so many year, what is it, thirty years now, forty years of thirty K. I, I think this represents the thirty. This is there's thirty, yeah. So one of the hard things when you're coming into the game so late, and something I'm gonna talk to my son about is we're just gonna stick with ninth edition for now, you know. Even if our codex has come out in tenth edition. I know that that eliminates use of certain apps and things like that, but um, to build stuff. But for now, look, you know, it's better to get used to one thing and then try to learn one thing and then all of a sudden have to learn another whole thing. Sure. That would be, I mean, that would be the equivalent. I mean, I, uh, spoiler alert, uh, spoiler. It's Sean and I have done podcasts years i've known sean for years he's a good friend and we first learned uh i first met sean on an x-wing podcast and we talked about the game of x-wing from fantasy flight games that would be the equivalent sean of those individuals whenever second edition x-wing came out and they said nope i like first edition i'm sticking with it i don't know how many of those folks are still around i mean i but i'm sure there are i'm i will guarantee you that there are folks out there that are still playing and supporting first edition x-wing and it's in, in what it is yeah, I, I I would agree with that, and I think that that's just until I become familiar enough with it, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Now, my son might, if he decides, nope, we're doing tenth, we move to tenth, you know, as yeah, it sure. as it comes, you know, as it comes, because the problem is we we're both subscribers to Warhammer Plus, you know, so we have access to the builder and the rules that are within, so. Basically, I can take my phone and figure stuff out, you know. Yeah, and but, that, that will go away whenever 10th edition comes out. Cause I, correct, yeah. So 9th edition will become, you know, so I would have to do a lot of it, you know, on tablets and stuff where I'm downloading PDFs to read and things like that. So there may be a change. Now, what irks me is that they're going to come out with 9th edition Astra Militarum in the waning months of ninth edition you know I, all right so if i had to take a guess and again this is only an educated guess based on the traditional publication history that they have done in the past that's not to indicate that this is the same you're going to see um imperial guard before the end of this year you're probably going to see the world eaters codex i don't know if by the end of this year or the beginning of next year beginning 2023 you're going to have those campaign books and then they probably won't even announce 10th edition until like March or April with the intention of launching it during the summer. The the fundamental problem that I have, and I feel bad for this is going to be the one edition for the game. I generally going to feel bad for I don't feel that ninth edition got enough of a fair shake because it was released in 2020 because it was released during a pandemic in the very first year, year and a half of its lifespan People physically weren't playing the game in quote unquote competitive. I mean, people were playing it at home, I'm sure, but like that huge sample size of large events that can really run it through the ringer as far as the rules regulations and how they work. It only got about half of its lifespan, really, if that's what the plan is, is to release a 10th edition that alters fundamentally the rules. I don't know. We'll see. Like uh, everyone seems to be talking about it on the rumor mill that if Games Workshop is going to announce a 10th edition, it's going to be soon, and that's going to be the direction that they go. I am in the camp that I don't feel that they necessarily need to fix that via an edition change. 
I've never felt that way. I mean, occasionally, like maybe when we went, when they went from seventh edition to eighth edition and they reintroduced movement because in prior years, prior to third edition, from third, from fourth edition all the way up into seventh edition, movement was standardized against all um, infantry or all model types. If your model was infantry, it moved six inches. If your model was a bike, it moved 12. If your model was a tank, it moved 12. Like it was standardized. And that was one of the things, one of the essences I felt that the game lost um, when they went from third to fourth edition was the fact that this unit is inherently faster or slower than this other unit. Um, when they decided to go back and they changed, and that's not the only change that they made, but it puts all the codices, like if they keep going with the Games Workshop release schedule, we're going to release a new edition, but you're going to be playing a codex that was written for the previous edition until your right. new one comes out. If they're going to keep that model, they couldn't do that when 8th edition was released because every model in the game needed to have a new movement. And the only way to do it was these big books that they put out, which were indexes that basically contained seven armies all in one book that just updated all the points and all their stats. Um, I don't know that they're going to do that with 10th edition. I think there's a lot of talk on the rumor mill of either eliminating or rethinking the stratagem uh, mechanics of 9th edition, which I wouldn't be opposed to. Uh, I do feel that if there is one area that definitely needs tweaked, it is that. I feel that stratagems can be way too swingy. I think they've tried adjusting it by eliminating, cutting in half the amount of command points a player gets at the game, and I still don't think that's enough. Um, I think they need So, to- I want to throw this out there since you brought up stratagems, and I know we're a little bit over time, but the, the biggest thing, the biggest concern that I have for me playing the game is stratagems because there's just too damn many of them you know when you when you get down to it so space marines you know so i have the stratagems in the space marine book and then i have the stratum stratagems in the ultramarine uh-huh. book okay so this is where to me the you know m- moving models measuring where models go and shooting at crap is the easiest part of the game sure 100 it's easy that's you know, why I said that I don't feel that the base rules necessarily the the move yeah. shoot psychic um you know move, I'll, I'll psychic, be honest shoot and combat don't need fixing what what would be interesting is that if they took the stratagems and narrowed them a lot well so that's my argument with it that's so in my mind it added an aspect of resource management to the game that it didn't need. Because legitimately, that's what it is. You have a resource, command points. You start off with six, depending on how you built your army. You start off with six. You get one every turn, both your turn and your opponent's turn, until you build up to this pool. So you have this pool of points that you can spend on all of these abilities. And I can Mm -hmm. definitely see from a new player coming in, I've got the Space Marine one, and I've got the Astartes, uh, the Ultramarines cards. I've got like 60 cards. Now, right. you may not even have the units in your army that half of those cards even affect. Some yes. of them are generic. Some of them do affect things. And in my mind, they, I mean, they do add some thematic um, inspiring parts of the game. Like, oh, my guy's going to die, but I'm going to spend this one point over here and he's going to be able to swing on death. Or I really, mm-hmm. really need that tank to go away. So I'm going to automatically do the damage. So I'm going to spend a point for that. But in my mind, like it, it, it added that resource management to a game that I don't feel was necessary. If you want right. to give those weapons or those characters or those individual models, those abilities, those abilities should be in the data slate for the for the, the Correct. model. Like I should. Be and that's to- exactly where I that's where I was going to go to next is that if you're going to have it great, but you got to make it so that the model is the one that has it, you know. Don't and I get you know this is probably heresy when it comes to 40k. This is heresy cast. <laughs> but the the concern that I have is that the game is too cumbersome. If that makes sense, no, it you know, it a hundred percent makes sense. I can in that part of the game. That is the most that that's the most um, intimidating part of the game is trying to figure out what works well against what. You know, yep. now I'm not, I'm not one, I'm going to be playing my son. So, you know, we'll, we'll sit down and we'll figure out, you know, what's good, what's not good, you know, what to use, what's too overpowering because, you know, he's playing thousand sons as his main potentially orcs as a second. I'm going to move to Militarum. 
with Space Marines as my second, Sororitas as my third, or moving those around. Um, you know, but I don't want the game to be unfun because of the cumbersome of that aspect of the game. I agree. What you don't want to have, though, and again, I want to try to button this up because I know we're a little over time. Um, yep. What you don't want to have is what they did with third edition. I think third or fourth edition is what they did. They tried to dumb the game down so much that it lost all of its flavor. So, like, legitimately, if you were to look, if I were to pull my the old third edition Tyranid Codex I have sitting over there, right. it's about 28 pages. Mm-hmm. And of those 28 pages, 20 of them are really probably just fluff, just, fluff, just story. Yeah. Legitimately, you had to move. It, it got down to that point. Your move, your unit does this. It moves this. It's this strong. This is its save. This is its gun. The end. Some of them had special Great. rules, but not a lot of them. They leaned really heavily into those days, especially going into fifth edition to the keyword system. And I don't still don't know why they went away from that. Like if I'm if a unit has an invulnerable save, I don't need you to give 17 different definitions on what an invulnerable save is. I don't need to, I don't need 22 different ways for to say, hey, I get a save versus um, uh, mortal wounds. It's just called this for this character and that for that character. I don't understand right. that. Right. All right. Okay. That we can pick this up next week Perfect. or next time. Oh, yeah. So like I said, in two weeks, we're going to get a lot more into the actual game itself. And then we will pick the lore back up. I'm really excited to talk about the Age of Apostasy because that is where my beloved Sisters of Battle come from. So I, I will absolutely dive into that as well. So in any case, that's going to do it for this one. Gabe, always fun talking to you. Yep. And you're doing all the talking next one. I'm going to I'm going to shut up in the next two episodes. <laughs> I Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sean, always good talking to you, my friend. And same back to you. It's good to learn this stuff. It is. All right. And we shall see you next time, guys. Thanks. Honorably discharged.